0: Hello, I'm Brendan Ogle, I'm speaking to you from Dublin, Ireland, and welcome to the second edition of the podcast, Left is Right. Well, as we approach Easter weekend, the pandemic continues here in Ireland, across Europe and globally. And today we're going to speak with a healthcare professional. The interview itself takes just over half an hour. The healthcare professional has been in the health service for almost four decades and there's going to be particular focus in the debate about what's going on to people in residential care uh, and what the limitations and what the new standards that are being applied to issues as sensitive as transfer from residential care to primary acute hospitals and also to what we call do not resuscitate orders or wishes uh, in terms of end of life care so it's a really uh, sensitive topic Uh, I'd ask listeners to bear with me I apologize in advance if a little bit of the sound is not what I would like it to be you know I don't know how long these podcasts are going to last but if they continue we'll get the equipment we'll make them a little bit better we'll make them as good as they can be but this is about content so thank you for listening And welcome to Left is Right. Hello. Uh, Hello. Um, We're joined now uh, on Left is Right by a woman who reached out to me last weekend. Um, We're going to call the woman Joan. Um, That's not her real name. Um, for her protection, uh, for the protection of her employer, and for the protection of the people that Joan cares for. We are not going to identify Joan uh, or the place where she works. Um, but Joan is a healthcare professional. She works in uh, a residential healthcare facility in the Republic of Ireland. And we're going to discuss uh, Joan's experience. Um, Joan has worked in that area for almost four decades. So a very, very experienced healthcare worker. And we're going to discuss with Joan some of the impacts of this pandemic, this COVID-19 disaster, which has uh, visited um, us, us and most of the planet over the last number of weeks. Um, Joan, thank you very much for joining uh, Left is Right, uh, for reaching out to me last week and for offering to share your real lived experience of this pandemic with us.
1: Thanks, Brendan. I think it's good to chat about these
0: things. Indeed, uh, Joan. Uh, and the things we're going to talk about uh in this conversation are going to be very, very difficult, uh, for some people, um, to hear. Um, I want to say at the outset, um, and I won't always say this on this podcast or elsewhere, uh, we're not having this conversation, uh, to score any points. We're not having this conversation to lay any blame, to point any fingers, uh, or, or to make any political case, uh, or otherwise about what's going on um there'll be other podcasts and there'll be other forums uh where uh, as people who know me know I, i'll do all that and it's necessary that we will do all that somewhere else but that's not why joan reached out to me uh and joan can explain herself why she reached out to me and i'm and, and i'm sure she will um joan um my introduction in terms of your, your experience uh, as a healthcare professional uh, in a caring environment in a residential care sector, that, that's, all, that's all accurate, is it?
1: That's all accurate. Uh, yes, I've been working for, uh, as you say, almost four decades. I work with people with intellectual disability in a residential
0: setting. Okay, okay. Um, in terms of the, the, the current emergency then, um can you tell me first of all how you um and how your colleagues uh, your fellow professionals um are managing are, are you well are, are you and your colleagues well um we'll talk about the patients and the people you care for in a few minutes but uh, how are you doing how are you all doing Uh, We're
1: doing okay. Uh, On the same token, almost a quarter of our our, um, total employee force are out on sick leave at the moment, which is a huge impact on services and daily services that we need. Plus, uh, uh, in all my years, I've never heard or seen that many people out of work in my place of work.
0: So about a quarter, about twenty five percent. Yeah, uh, and 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 um, as you say, that's a, that's a considerable spike in relation to the, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. Is is that right?
1: Oh, definitely. There there is no doubt about that. Never ha- never has been so many out on sick leave at one time and, together.
0: And and uh, so I assume then um, that that is putting a an additional burden on on those of you, you and those of your colleagues who are who are still in the workplace. The, the, the work remains the same. It's just been done by a lot less people.
1: That's that's basically the scenario. Uh, we we are looking maybe in one small little way in that day services are not running. So we have the, the skeletal remains of, of those that are not out sick coming on, on campus to help during the day. But it's such a limited service. And uh, we'd be in an emergency crisis for staff if we didn't have that or if many more people go out sick, many more staff go out sick, we're going to have a lot, a lot of problems. And and, um, I suppose nursing homes uh, I've seen, they run on skeleton staff, as we know, as well, uh, and being told to manage their own patients uh, as of the HSE advice uh, has put them under tremendous pressure in that um, I, I would believe people were um, working maybe even with slight symptoms of COVID, therefore, um, you know, jeopardising everybody's health. But it, it's just the staff pressure that's there.
0: What do you mean, uh, Joan, people might be working with slight symptoms of COVID?
1: I, I would imagine and uh, uh, that people have you gone to work and say oh it's only a slight sore throat but i need to go to work because if i don't go to work they won't have enough to work and take care of, of the people in our care and uh you know nursing homes in particular
0: okay okay well uh, that's interesting i didn't know you were going to make that, that point actually and um if, if I can, Joan, for a moment, uh, I'm going to, to segue into a, a, another discussion I had in recent days with another medical professional who works in a different environment than you. Uh, this young person is a nurse in one of Dublin's acute hospitals mm-hmm. uh, on the front line of fighting this pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And as a young person, um and um two or three years uh qualified and um I had a lengthy conversation with this person um the person didn't want to to go uh on air with me but openly give me the information and, and I'm happy to share it um the person was concerned for a couple of weeks um that they had mild symptoms um of the COVID-19 virus Um, But there was no testing available. um, And the person was going to work uh, every day, traveling to work every day and going to work. Um, About a week ago, actually eight days ago, um, the person was tested and was found to be positive for COVID-19. Um, On as a result of that, or or maybe it was just testing being done on the particular area of the hospital that day. And as I say, an acute hospital in Dublin, um, 17 of that person's colleagues were also tested positive on that day. 17 in this one area of this one hospital. And obviously the 17 of them were immediately told to go home, to isolate. Um, the person I spoke to is isolated in their own in their own bedroom, um, meals left at the door, all that sort of thing. The person has the person's symptoms have, have got uh, slightly worse, but but they're not too bad. Uh, hopefully that stays the case uh, and the person will be isolated uh, for two to three weeks. Um, told me that um, among colleagues. That it's clear that on any day, on every day, that up to 100 of our medical professionals in the Republic of Ireland are being tested positive for this virus. Now, that's very, very serious, of course, for everybody that's tested positive, very serious for for those people in terms of their, their health. Uh, their own personal health and very concerning and and, uh, and and I wish every single one of them well. It's also doubly concerning, of course, because it means that that number of people are being taken out of our health service for a period of two to three weeks. Um, and I've promised I won't make political points, so I won't. But that leaves us in a situation where a small country like this um, that's a serious amount of people Thank, thankfully lots of people have come home from different countries to, to help fill that and, and hats off to them hats off to them really um, the person has also been told that once uh, they recover they've gone through their period of isolation they have already been told that they will immediately be returned to a Covid ward this, that's, what, that's what it was called and this person wasn't working on a Covid ward up until now but once they've gone through this, and the person has no difficulty with this, quite right thinks that's quite rightly the case, and hopefully uh, this person will make a full recovery, and his, and the seventeen colleagues will make a full recovery. But they've already been told once that happens, you're going back on the COVID ward. So I'm just sharing that experience, that se- that secondhand testimony. But it, it's it's absolutely one hundred percent the information, I and mean, I haven't uh, added or subtracted to it in any way. So there we have a situation where where again in your situation coming back to you Joan, some people are trying to do their best um and we've heard a lot in the last few weeks and in the, in the the person I spoke to the were difficulties in that frontline service in that acute hospital in Dublin with with PPE equipment um there hadn't there had been a lack of it for a, for the for a period of weeks, and then as we read in the papers, some of the stuff that was, that was flown in, especially from China, was the the wrong size, uh, the sleeves were too short. Some of it just went down to to waist uh, or tie level. Uh, the masks were not, uh, in some cases, were well, about about twenty five percent. We think were not of the the required standard. Some of the stuff was there was best before issues. Um, and was used and utilised in other areas other than the front line. What's been your experience, Joan, uh, of the, the PPE issue, which is a huge issue? What, what What's the situation where you work?
1: Well, Brendan, I, I suppose I'm quite happy to, to say that the place I work in, we have plenty of pre- personal equipment, uh, protective equipment all the time. And uh, we would have had some, but um, since the emergence of covid Uh, we have plenty on hand all of the time. There is absolutely no um, pressure at all with getting more or having some in stock. So definitely it's a better maybe our turnover on protective equipment isn't as much as there would be in acute hospitals. Therefore the shortage is so relevant in in the acute hospitals as opposed to where I would work.
0: Great. Well that's great news. Um, And uh... Great news indeed, and and hopefully that will increasingly become the case in in all of our facilities, be they residential care facilities or acute hospitals. So so that that's really good to hear, and and so in terms of of your own situation, and again, uh, without identifying uh, any areas uh, or, or any specific uh, locations, of course. Um, so we've got a situation where in a residential setting, uh, 25% of the staff are, 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 are are ill, um, or off work. Um, obviously you're adhering, and I know, I know that you would be, you're adhering to all of the, the protections, I imagine increased protections that we all are in terms of social distancing, hand washing, um, in terms of cough etiquette. Um, so, and, and you're carrying a, a larger burden because so many of your colleagues are off sick. So, so from the point of view then of, of, the patients, the people that you care for. Um, if we could just focus in on on how the COVID situation has changed their uh, lived experience. Um, I'm assuming um, in your situation that visits, uh, contact, contact with the outside world, family next to kin calling in to see you all of the stuff that goes on in residential care facilities i'm assuming that that's all stopped
1: that's completely stopped with a number of weeks and up until the last um isolation um instruction that we got uh, our people were able to go out for a drive with with a staff member in, in maybe a minibus or in the car. So they were able to look out and see the world, et cetera. That has all stopped in the last two weeks with the with this stricter isolation. So now they are basically um, confined to home with very short walks if there's enough staff to take them for a little short walk. And um, people, uh, you can imagine living in in the same home all the time, 24-7, with, with no real um, services or no option of services. Uh, it's it's very hard on them. Uh, and it's particularly emotionally hard on, on staff because we're all trying to brainstorm and come up with the ideas to pass the day for them when they are... Um, you know, a lot of these people would be uh, creatures of habit that go to work in the morning or go to their music or go. And now it's so hard to explain to them uh, as staff and and to try to get them to understand that uh, this is not happening today and it mightn't happen either tomorrow. But, you know, and what is a bug, you you know? So um, from that point of view, it's very difficult on the staff Interacting with
0: the with the the people I work with really difficult. I think we're all struggling with the social isolation. I think the whole nation, the the whole world, is struggling with the social isolation. Uh, I see new laws enacted today to cover cover the period over the Easter weekend. Um, for those of us who are relatively well and who are well and and who are at home with our loved ones, it's difficult. Um, I can only imagine how much more difficult it is for somebody in a residential facility who are, who is confined to that facility, um, es- essentially that, that that's become their home, um, who who suffers from some form of of illness or intellectual disability. In some cases, or in many many cases, who are in nursing homes. Um, and um the staff form relationships uh with their with their with the patients, with the clients, what if you want to use that terminology, uh, with the people you care and love actually. Um, and to try to explain and get through the seriousness of the situation. Um, really, Joan, um, it it's it's amazing work that you and your colleagues do all over the country um and and i can imagine how difficult that is um some of us think we've got a problem because we're running out of things to watch on netflix um but this is really the 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 sharp end of it um from obviously some of the patients and you know i imagine it's a it's a mixed facility where patients are of of different ages and different different health and and different conditions uh and talking about medical conditions now um and it must it must be a worry, and and there's a, there's a tried and tested uh, process which the the HSE or the previous health boards had in place uh, of taking care of these issues and and having standby cover, uh, having access to to nurses, to doctors, to 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 hospitals if necessary. Uh, what sort of changes have we seen? Uh, are you witnessing, Joan, in your day to day work uh, over the last number of weeks with this? Uh, Virus in relation to to the backup services that, that the, the people that you care for can can rely on and need to rely on.
1: Um, the examples I'd have about this uh, this particular question you you have, Brendan, are that uh, people now are categorised as not for transfer, uh, and that means that if if you're of a high risk at all or high vulnerability uh you're not for transfer to hospital for acute service. And uh also DNRs uh, are being put in place um where they haven't been before. And there there are quite a few examples of this I would have. And um I suppose they're the biggest uh changes I see.
0: Okay. Well, you've you've introduced two terms there, uh, Joan. You've introduced the term not for transfer, and you've introduced the term uh, the term DNR. So just to go just to go through the two of those with you, so we, so we can fully understand um the situation people are faced with. So so the, the am I to interpret the do not transfer to to be, uh, some sort of of instruction or change in process whereby, people who would previously uh, have been transferred um, out of the the care facility to to a hospital, should they become unwell, or not to be transferred. Is is that how I'm to interpret that?
1: That that's basically it. A certain um, uh, category of, of people with with um, respiratory problems are are now classified as not for transfer, in that um, they they would, I suppose, almost surely die if they get COVID.
0: In the care facility? In the
1: care facility,
0: yeah. Without recourse to... Without a
1: recourse to a hospital.
0: OK. And you, you, you also spoke there uh, about DNR. Now, I'm going to... And, and I'll ask you to correct me if I say something wrong here, Joan, um, because I'm not a medical professional. I do, unfortunately, have some personal experience of this this DNR situation. and So I'll, I'll try to describe it for the listeners in my own... Uh, lay person's uh, manner but please correct me if I get this wrong Um, my understanding of of the the DNR situation is that that medical professionals uh, when they become medical professionals take a a Hippocratic Oath and that's an oath that they take a commitment and undertaking um, that they will do everything in their power to keep the people in their care alive for as long as possible um, and that's a solemn. I'm not a religious person, but it, that's the word that comes to mind. Uh, that's a solemn undertaking, a professional undertaking, a standard, an ethic um, that they commit to when they enter into their into their their profession. Um, the the DNR uh, for those who haven't had to deal with this situation, and um, many many people have, and many 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 people will. DNR, uh, of course, stands for Do Not Resuscitate. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an undertaking that, that those of us, um, every one of us, uh, can consider, and as we, as we become unwell in, in due course in life and as we get older, we will consider um, what happens to us if we become unwell, or perhaps in many, many cases, what happens to our loved one um, if, if they become unwell and they are in our care? Uh, if they're perhaps a ward or if they're perhaps, uh, if, if we have some sort of duty care, if we're the next of kin and somebody is unwell and, and loses, in effect, the ability to breed or to sustain life themselves. The Hippocratic Oath would dictate that medical professionals would be brought on board and every means at their resource um, would be, would, be ta- would be brought to bear to keep that person alive. And every means, of course, could be could be oxygen. We see a lot about Boris Johnson being unwell and he's getting oxygen. Uh, it could be, you know, if you have a heart attack or take some sort of a, a stroke or a heart attack, that that there could be resuscitation in terms of of of, um, or there could be a resuscitation machine, um, a ventilator could be brought to bear. Now these are not easy issues. Um, these are not easy things. Uh, first of all, medically and the more you learn about this the 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 more difficult it becomes medically uh, i think it's fair to say or my experience is anyway that the that, that, that the the dnr situation is invasive so for someone that's unwell for someone who's really sick you know it's not a it's not a something that's easily done or readily entered into it's very invasive it can cause a lot of distress it can cause a lot of pain um there are medical issues at issue here There are moral issues. There are issues of care, of empathy, of love, of family. In many cases, there will be religious issues. Um, But but we or our families on our behalf uh, may enter into or may be empowered to enter into uh, signing. And a signing is involved here. Signing a form called the DNR, which basically um, takes away from the medical professional, from the medical system, um, the obligation that they took upon themselves in entering into the Hippocratic Oath. So, in other words, when that person becomes unable to breathe, that there will be no attempt to resuscitate, and a, an undertaking, a signed legal undertaking, has to be entered into on behalf of the the parent or the pa- sorry, not the parent, the patient, or maybe by themselves or by a carer um, that takes that responsibility away. Am I describing it right from your experience, Joan? Am I? Am I? Is that how... You're
1: describing it perfectly, Brenda, and um, it, it's such an emotional um, drain on, on anyone, as, as you said yourself, you know personally what that means. And uh, now it seems to be um, par for the course that people that are in care, uh, are their families are being asked to uh, DNR their, their loved one. So in, in a time that they can't see their, their their family member um or talk to them really either because some people would be nonverbal and wouldn't uh you know get any anything from a phone call perhaps and they're asked to sign a DNR, albeit that maybe their their person is ill and would have respiratory problems, but in, in, in this high trauma. Uh, they're now being asked to sign a DNR
0: on their loved one. OK, so in the normal course, a DNR would be something that people might sign voluntarily. Some people just do it when they do their will or something. It's something they talk about themselves when they're in the full of their health and they make a decision and they sign it and they put it on their medical records. In many other cases, I'm talking about in the normal course now. In many other cases... Uh, when somebody becomes unwell, um, and maybe can't speak for themselves because they're so unwell, uh, the next of kin or the family would be asked by the medical professionals: Has the family got a position? Has the carer got a position? Has the loved one? Has the, has the next of kin got a position? But what, what, what am I? Is what you're saying to me now, Joan, is that in this COVID situation, that rather than 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 that be left? to its natural time and its natural point in the life cycle, that people are being contacted now in these care facilities and people are being asked now to, to give this undertaking now when they are well and when they may not be having symptoms, they may not be having respiratory, respiratory symptoms but linked to the do not transfer position, that people are being asked to sign this DNR now is that what is that
1: what I would, I would say so the, uh, the the examples i have and i have a, a, a nice view of them uh, or every one of them would indicate that
0: okay so so one of the impacts of this virus one of the, the most difficult impacts of this virus is that the the the, the, the huge proportion of our loved ones um, who are in care facilities for a number of reasons it could be age, it could be health care it could be it could be intellectual uh, um, disability issues as in, in, in other cases who are in those facilities are now having the imposition of having to address this question in an in an era and at a time when they're unable to sit down around a bed or around a table um surrounded by their loved ones. And discuss this conversation on in in the way that would always be the case um so when so so that's really that's really horrific isn't it how does the, how does that how does that make people feel in the facilities how does it make the the, the, the patients feel how does it make the carers the workers well the feel workers
1: uh, um the workers that i know that i i've discussed various things with uh are absolutely emotionally drained by this because um it's the ultimate end and it's the beginning of of you saying your farewell to somebody because it means when they get sick again they're not going to go to hospital and come back after a few weeks again and uh, uh, to us and and to live at home again and you know and um it, it, it just makes it emotionally draining. The, the physicality of the job is hard enough, but there is an emotional tie when you work with somebody in residential care always. And um, it, it's just very difficult.
0: And how widespread is How this?
1: widespread is the DNR and the not for transfer? Um yes. well, the examples in, in the part of the country I live in uh, would be in local hospitals and uh, residential care setting
0: so so in a in a facility where we have we have excellent amount of patients we've got a, a hundred a hundred patients um and I would assume well i know again fortunately from my own experience a number of of people. We'll, we'll probably have signed these things and have considered it in, 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 in the proper course uh, and with the right people around them. Uh, many, many people won't. Many people won't consider these issues until they become unwell. Um, our natural human impulse, of course, is to, is, to, is to fight for life, to fight to hold on to life. Um, it's a human impulse that, that we all have. So m- many people won't have considered um, this issue before. To those people in in care who haven't considered this position before, how has the COVID situation changed that, John?
1: Well, as as far as I'm aware, uh, and uh, one particular example I would have would be of of a person who would have uh, respiratory problems, but her family, uh, as in they're, they're the next of kin, were not anxious to sign a DNR now they have signed it and uh i know for a fact they're extremely extremely upset
0: okay okay but that that's a person that's very very upsetting uh for that family uh and i'm sure there are lots of families uh well i hope not too many but i'm sure there are other families around the country in that is there what about people who haven't got symptoms or don't have respiratory issues uh it, it, it's not an issue.
1: This. I, I I've heard an, and have have actually an example of of one of one case particularly that uh, the person is um in a, in a care setting with dementia has no other underlying uh, issues other than mobility challenges and uh, the family have been called to DNR for that person.
0: So apart from, apart from dementia, uh, uh, terrible illness, but apart from dementia, this person has no pre-existing conditions which make them vulnerable to COVID and have no respiratory conditions. Is that what you're saying? Yet, yet that family have been contacted and asked to sign a DNR.
1: It's like that it's uh, tidying up the paperwork, in my opinion um you know okay patient a okay do not transfer dnr oh she doesn't have her dnr let's get that sorted you you know um
0: so every patient yeah every every single
1: patient in any kind of care has a file
0: and every patient has now a do not transfer under five i don't
1: i i couldn't say that that about every patient uh all the people I work with would not have, but anyone of a high risk definitely has a do not transfer. Uh,
0: and then, and then people are then the files are being checked then to see has a DNR uh, do not resuscitate permission yes. permission by the patient or permission by the family. Yes, being where the normal place.
1: course of events was, would be when this person would be ill and maybe in hospital. Solonky. The team would meet with the family and say, look. I don't know are these interventions working? Uh, you know, have you considered it? And it could still take a couple of years before the family would consider DNR. Uh, yeah. You
0: know, so rather than it being a voluntary situation, did people arrive at themselves, or did it, did it arrive at in an emergency situation? Um, it's it's a question that's now been raised. Is it fair to say as a matter of course? In my opinion, yes. Okay. Well, I think, you know, those of us who have had an experience uh, of care facilities and we have a lot of our, our loved ones uh, around the country in nursing homes at this time. Uh, a lot of people have loved ones in nursing homes they can't get to see. Um, and we've got pockets um of contagion haven't we joan we've got an increasing number i think
1: there's well over 100 of, uh this evening from what i, I heard and um 100, 100 uh, clusters they're called and that's that's categorically where there are two or three people that are positive covid positive so we uh, we have okay. over 100 uh today and um I I think maybe the, the information that the HSE gave the nursing homes initially, in that they managed their own care, wasn't the best advice.
0: Okay. So you you reached out to me uh, last weekend, Joan, and said that you did you did did you like to have a conversation that you'd like to. to... Your, your motivation is clearly coming from a very, very sincere and a very loving place. Uh, and, and, you know, it's about putting information out there. It's about people understanding um, the depth uh, of this emergency. We have people out there. Um, I won't even dignify them by giving them names um, who, 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 you know, are behaving as if everything is normal who are behaving as if this isn't happening, who are ascribing con- conspiracies, um, made-up stories. It's an invention. Um, we're, we're talking to somebody here with forty, almost 40 years' experience in the healthcare system. We're talking with somebody who is a professional, who cares deeply, obviously, for, about the people that you, that you care for. When you reached out uh, to have this conversation and to, to make this information uh, known, um, is is have we have we discussed have we achieved what you wanted to achieve, Joan? Have you?
1: Yeah, and I'd like to endorse what you said. This isn't a, a dig at anybody, Brendan, or or anything like that. It's just about validating the information. I think people need to know. Uh, what's going on and uh, particularly in nursing homes where where, you know they seem to 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 be getting a lot of flack at the moment uh, with their mismanagement but it was their instruction so um, you know hopefully times will change for them and things will just uh, you know get better again
0: no, I'm sorry, John, I don't want to, to, to elongate this any more than 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 you're comfortable with, but I'm not just clear on my own mind now about the last point you've made in terms of, of the nursing homes getting some flack and it was their instruction. Oh, sorry. Do, you, do you want of to just course. explain
1: that? Um as I as I previously said, the HSE instruction to nursing homes was they were to manage their own patient care. And that would possibly come from n- non transfer and uh, you know, if People weren't tested if they suspected they were were COVID. And uh, now people are are dying in in nursing homes. As I said already, there's over 100 clusters. And uh, nursing homes had no direct help from acute hospitals or or anything. And there seems to be a bit on social media, you know, about nursing homes and, and maybe the way they were mismanaged. But I think it's very important that uh, it, it's clear that they've, they've done the very best they
0: could. Well, Joan, uh, thank you very much. I just want I'm going to just finish by saying this. Um, again, based on my own experience, um, we have had scandals in this country uh, down through the years uh, about lots of things. There have been some scandals about nursing homes. Um my own experience of the nursing home that, that, that my mum spent the last number of years in her life uh, in up until uh, two weeks ago um, is that she was very, not only very much cared for, but very much loved. And that she was very much cared for and loved by people such as yourself. And there will always be things that will go wrong and there will always be bad practice in everything. In, a, in every in every sector of the economy in every sector of 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 society, there will always be bad apples. But in general, my experience, um, and it's 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 um, I think it's elucidated on further from the, my conversation with you, Joan, My experience is that that these facilities are packed with people who not only care but deeply deep are deeply compassionate about the people they care for, uh, and. We've been launched into this pandemic. Um, nobody nobody sat down to cause this. It's very, very real. It's impacting on the carers. It's impacting on the professionals. It's impacting on, on our most vulnerable, most of all, obviously. And it's impacting on the very decisions that families, loved ones, next of kin have to make about end-of-life care. And it's doing that because... It's a pandemic. It's a disaster. And people are struggling to cope. Uh, and from myself, Joan, uh, this is just my second podcast. When I, I didn't know I was going to make a first one. And when I made the first one, I didn't know I was going to make a second one. And I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to make a third one. But uh, for my second one, uh, it's been uh, a real uh, privilege to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for reaching out. Thank you for sharing your personal experience. And please, you and your colleagues, be safe and continue to do what you do.
1: Thanks, Amelia and Brendan. It was really nice to talk. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that just about wraps up the second edition, the second podcast, Left is Right. I'm so grateful to Joan for having that long discussion with me about her real-life experience through this pandemic in a residential care facility here in the Republic of Ireland. I think we're all so grateful too to those care workers, to the frontline workers, to the retail workers, to the emergency workers and to the cleaners. Um, Yes, the cleaners who have such, such a role to play. It's true, it's becoming clear who the really important jobs are and who the real heroes in our society are as we go through this pandemic. So on this Easter weekend, I want to thank them all for everything to do for us. I want to thank any of you who listen, who like and who share this podcast. Towards the end of the podcast, I commented to Joan that I never really meant to do a podcast. <laughs> I can say here, I was listening to Michael Moore last Saturday afternoon and at home in my splendid isolation. And as I was listening to Michael, I was just he was talking about... Uh, you know how he's doing his podcast and he was encouraging people to go on and and democratize the airwaves i think that's important by the way so i I just tinkering around with a phone uh and you know figuring out could i do this i'm not a techie by any manner of means and a couple of hours later to my great surprise there was a a podcast it was okay it was me reading a book but (laughs) it was still a podcast um i kind of enjoyed it you know um but there are serious issues that we need to discuss and media does need to be democratised. So uh, I kind of, uh, Joan reached out to me then because she heard the first podcast and, and she knew who it was. And um, the young man also who, who I spoke to, uh, the young nurse who I spoke to, who's at home recovering from COVID-19 and all of his colleagues, uh, thanks to them as well. Um, so now I've done two. Um, I kind of ordered a mic now because I know the sound isn't great and some people don't like the music and some people hate my voice and slag off my dark accent but that's okay as well Um, so maybe there'll be a third maybe there'll be a fourth maybe there won't Um, but in any event thanks for listening thanks for sharing have a good Easter and most of all be safe